0: Amen. Amen. Well, thank you to our worship team. Thank you, guys. That was awesome. Well, good morning, everybody. It is really good to see you all. And um, there's been some exciting things that have been happening around here over the last couple of weeks. Um, Something that happened last week that I told Phyllis, you know, um, your friends could wish you happy birthday on your birthday, but your real friends wait like a week later so that you still get to feel that, you know, awesomeness of birthday. So happy birthday, happy 39th birthday, Phyllis. And um, some other things that have been, been wonderful that have happened here. Um, Friday marked the end of our 40 days of, of hour-long prayer. And that was an invitation that we put out to each one of you in response to 40 years of God's faithfulness here as we celebrated Bridges and Zion's 40th anniversary. And i, I got to tell you, that time was so rich. It was such a, a special time to just sit at, at the feet of Jesus. And I want to tell you that... If um, even though Friday ended it, that there's no law on the books or rule that says you can't continue spending an hour in prayer with Jesus. And and my hope is that it's helped to develop maybe a habit in you that you're like, oh, I kind of, I'm ready for my hour, you know? Um, This is not like a legalistic requirement, but it's an invitation. And I can't think of a time where I spent an hour at least trying to pray, right? That sometimes I was sharing with my friend, he's a pastor as well, like you're five minutes into prayer and you're then over here on a house project. Then you're back in five minutes in prayer and then you're over here on a work concern, but as we try our best to center in and, and focus on Jesus in prayer, I can't think of a time where I walked away from that going, man, I wish I'd have been doing something else then. Are you with me? <laughs> okay. Has there ever been a time that you had your quiet time or you sat with Jesus that you're like, I really wish I'd have been doing something else? Probably not because he's so good. But how many times do you think of everything that you should be doing so that you can't do that? right? How many times does that weigh over us? And so just let that, um, that continue on. And then also, um, as you've been praying for the church and, and just praying as the Lord's led, we really want to hear if, the, if God's put anything on your hearts, if there's anything that He's shared with you in those times of prayer. And interestingly... Last Wednesday was the beginning of the Easter season, the Lent season, right? So that would be, I think, it would have been 40 days to Easter on Wednesday. So I think we're like 36 days to Easter. And, um, and so, I don't know, it's a great way to just keep rolling into it. Can you believe we are 36 days away from Easter? That's wild. Like, summer's almost over, you guys, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, it's Christmas. It's planned Christmas. This is how these things work. So... Um, Yeah, and then uh, on Wednesday night, we began uh, a new adventure here in what we're calling learning how to develop a a new muscle of cultural, cultural discernment, right? And that is to look at the things that are happening in our world through the lenses of the kingdom of God. There's things that are happening in this world, and there are things that are happening in God's kingdom, and sometimes the two do not match. Would you agree? And so this past week, we looked at some sexual ethics, you know, and and diving into that topic. This coming week, we're going to talk about um, technology and the addiction of technology and the the idol of productivity that we have in our culture. And so if you are interested in that, there's still uh, ability to to sign up for the Think Summit. How many of you were there? Would you just slip up your hands if you were there? Was it pretty good? All right, you heard them. So there you go. Uh, We'd love to have you come out for that. And then um, finally, before I, this is all free before I get into the message, um, we've been doing a, uh, a series for uh, marrieds um, called Marriage on the Rock. And um, yeah, I heard a woo. There was a couple. Yeah. I wanted to thank Ben. I wanted to thank Charm, Chester and Teresa, and Gary and Marley, just, uh, Marlene. Sorry. Um, just thank you for your, um, for your leadership in that. And then I also wanted to invite uh, um, Stephen, and is Jessica here too? Yeah, there you are. If you guys would want to come up and just share what, what um, this has meant to them and their experience with it. So would you welcome them as they come up? <laughs> the
1: green light is on, so you can. Hey, everybody. Well, I'm Steve. This is my wife, Jessica. Um, we've been married for about 12 years, and uh, we were married in orange, and we've moved all over the place. We were living in Colorado and Kentucky and Idaho for a while, but we're back here um, since about October. And anyways, the marriage class came up as an option, and um, we felt like it was a perfect timing for us to do that. Um, we've been through many seasons in life with all the moves and everything. We, um, shoot, three years into to marriage, we had marriage on the rocks, not on the rock, but (laughs) Um, it was uh, a really difficult time um, that we went through, and and God brought us through that and and repaired our marriage in um, just immeasurable ways uh, over the course of of many years, and uh, we went through infertility struggles and just the, the, the difficulty of that where God brought us through all of that and and, you know two years ago today we're celebrating our son's second birthday so that's a miraculous thing (laughs) yeah just a a miraculous thing and so you know we've been through a lot of seasons together uh but here we were you know uh, we had a lot of focus on our marriage before um but in the last two years having a child and and the change of seasons it's like well you know we met with Danny before that too as well and just were reminded of um, how, how faithful God is and his healing and, and uh, repairing marriages and repairing people's lives. And, you know, it was great to go through the class and be reminded of those things and also to see um, how we need to focus again on prioritization of our marriage, the purpose in that, um, and just ways that we were you know, distracted by having a young one, and it's a different season in life, so it's been a a really important thing for the two of us to have really great conversations, so, yeah. yeah. Did you want
2: to share? I was going to say, yeah, it's it's super easy to focus on your marriage when it's just the two of you, and we had 10 years (laughs) where it was just the two of us, and, you know, we had ups and downs, but we were always able to kind of focus in, but when you become parents, our lives have changed a lot, and you're, When you become parents it's very easy to get distracted and let your marriage kind of you know take the back seat and you're all focused on that baby and raising him and um it's been a really good time for us to have kind of that tune up and and the questions just revisiting like what is it that made your you fall in love with your spouse and Mm -hmm. how did you pursue your spouse and it's just been a great time for us to kind of refocus um those priorities in our life and um us building our strong marriage is what is absolutely what's best for our son um and just i feel so strongly like the holy spirit just saying to me that that bridge god wants us to be a church of restored people and restored marriages and um ministry is found where you've been broken and your testimony is found where you've been restored <laughs> and we've definitely been restored in this area and just as a wife and as a mother our main my main ministry is at home and it's to my son to be a mom to my husband to be a wife and this has just been a great time to really focus in on those things that matter when there's a lot going on that can steal your attention. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys.
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, please. You just preach. (laughs) So yeah, just
1: just as we were talking and going through this, Proverbs 31 came up the other day, and I I just wanted to to read the description of a, a, a worthy woman. It says, "An excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for." wool and flax and works with her hands in delight she is like a merchant ship; she brings her food from afar she rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens she considers it a field and buys it for her earnings uh, from her earnings she plants a vineyard she girds herself with strength and makes her arm strong she senses that her gain is good her lamp does not go out at night she stretches out her hands to the distaff and her her hands to grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. She stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes uh, linen, garments, and sells them, and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also. And he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. So just as we were going through the class, I thought about that a lot. <laughs> yeah. <Well done. laughs> That's my wife.
0: Right Thank you, guys. Hey, before you sit down, would you recommend this for other people?
1: Absolutely. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, it's, Everybody needs some time to focus on, on their marriage. There's a lot of other things in this world, uh, tearing and distracting away, and, and the enemy of our souls seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, and I think it's really based a, a lot of times against marriages. So, yeah. absolutely.
0: all right on. Yeah. All right, thank you guys. So, uh, we'll be doing an, another session upcoming, so pay, um, keep, keep watch over that um, when, when those things are advertised and um, jump in. And just know too, it's for every um, stage of marriage. It's for those that are engaged to be married. If some in the room had been married for how long? What? 57 years, and and others just a few years. And so it's a great, well, now it's a competition. 64 over here. Can I get 65? Who's got 65? All right, you guys win. So... So hey, yeah, come, and and I can't think of a, a, a better thing to do than invest in your marriage. So thank you, thank you, Stephen and Jessica, for sharing your hearts. Um, we're going to be in the Gospel of John in John chapter 10. Uh, I was tempted to jump into John chapter 11, which is just a, a wonderful um, uh, direction that the Gospel takes and the, the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead, and we'll get into that. But I just had this um, nudge in my spirit to hang out in this last portion of John 10. I know that we covered it a little bit, but particularly one of the reasons I wanted to look at it is there's a confusing passage in there. Have you ever read the Bible and been a little confused? Sometimes you read the Bible and you just want to like skip over it or you just get Andy to preach on it. One of the two. (laughs) But, but but, But this time... This time, I I thought, you know what, I want to look at this a little deeper as one one little point, and then I'm so glad that I did, because it was really rich for me personally as I I looked into this, and so I pray that it will be the same for each one of you. So let's get right back into it. If you remember where we found ourselves um, in the story or in the account... um, Jesus is um, on the heels of the miracle of giving sight to the blind man, which is the first recorded miracle of its kind. It was like, how could he not be the the um, the Messiah, or at least for others as they would identify him? At least he's a prophet. Like this, you know, and the and the scandal that came around it. That you know, you get so stuck in in a preconceived idea that this person is, is evil. And I'm speaking of the religious leaders of the time. It's like he he couldn't be okay that. All they can see is what he's not, and so they have to build a case against him. It was a refusal to believe in who he, who he was and who he is. And yet you have a blind man who's like, I, I mean, they're, they're just grilling him, trying to find out, like, how this could happen to him. And he says, look, I don't know. All I know is this, that I was blind, and now I can see. And then he kind of gets a little sarcastic himself and says, hey, why are you asking me all these questions? What, do you guys want to follow him too? And so we realize and we see this theme of belief through the gospel of John. Um, this theme starts in, in the very beginning and then it, it, it weaves through. And it's even the very purpose of the book, and I'll get to that in just a second, where John says in the 20th chapter, this is why I'm writing this stuff, this account is so that you will believe and that by believing that you'll have life. And so the word belief is, is woven throughout this, um, this gospel and at least um, for me, as I've been reading it, it just has become such a clear case for Christ, right? It's, it's written in such a way that you see what he's done, you see how he lives, you see his, his proclamations, what he says about himself, what others say about him, and then you're left with, what do I do with what I know? That's why I believe so many come to faith through reading this gospel. That's why when somebody's curious about Jesus or Christianity, we often say, hey, you know a good place to start is where? In the Gospel of John. And I have been so enjoying this, and I hope that you have too. And so here's where we find ourselves um, in John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. It just says, at that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. This is a time stamp that helps us to realize that within a, halfway through a chapter, three months or so have elapsed. A season has changed. Now, we know this because of when this um, particular feast falls. Um, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. But if you were to search through your Old Testament f- to find the Feast of Dedication, do you think you would find such a feast? No, you wouldn't find such a feast because it's not in the Old Testament. Um, you have the three main feasts. You have Passover, the Feast of Booths, and um, the, the there's one more. Uh, Passover, Feast of Booths. Somebody tell me what it, uh, weeks, yeah. So, so these, are the, these are the three main ones. But this one is not in there because it happened in the intertestamental period, right around 165 B.C. Um, There was an evil ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Syrian king, and many of you probably already know this story, but he oppressed the people of Israel, took over Jerusalem, and committed horrendous acts. I mean, he was a cruel and horrible person. He killed many of the, the people of Israel. He, he refused to let them um, worship in the way that God had called them to. Refused to let that pass on to generations. If, if there was an act where a parent, say, um, followed the rite of uh, circumcision, that child would be killed as well as the parent in a grotesque and horrendous way. It was awful. Probably the, the height of his awfulness was when he brought a pig into the holiest place, sacrificed a pig on the altar of the Lord, and instituted temple prostitution in the temple. That's bad, right? Uh, known as the desolation of sacrilege, right? It was like the worst. And out of that moment in history rose up a, 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 the, the Maccabeans, right? And, and one named Judas the Hammer, I just think that's the cool, I think his biceps were huge, right? Just like... Wah, wah. Judas the hammer led a revolt that put an end to um, to uh, antiochus Epiphanes' rule of terror and as they were going through the the process of of dedicating the temple, rededicating the temple purifying it it 's similar to our story, which I tell in in our um, in our, um, in our, um, what's the name of the class history and um, and values when you become a new member? When this building was purchased, it was it was prior to our use. It, a cult group had it, and they were doing all kinds of nonsense in this place, right? And thank God He had a plan, and He He gave this building back to a Bible believing church. But I say this to say that um, I tell often that I remember because I came here when I was a little kid and I remember um, certain ushers would come through and they would put oil over the, the doorways, you know. And, and I would say no matter how many times you, you paint this facility, there will be oil that comes through the paint because it was like we're cleansing this place of all that unrighteousness. Well, you can imagine that in this temple, there was a, a rite of cleansing, and, and so they began to um, cleanse and rededicate the temple for worship as unto the Lord. Praise God. And so when they did, there was, uh, there was a way that you do things, and there was a certain kind of oil that you used to light the lamp in the, the place. You remember we studied the book of Exodus, and there was lots of rules and ways that you do things. And so in this time in history, um, the, the feast commemorates a miracle. It's either a legend or a miracle. It's not up to me to decide. But the, the story goes that there was a, a one vat of sealed oil that was prepared by the priest that they found as they were uncovering all the other things that were torn apart and destroyed in the temple. They found this, and it was used to light the candle in that place in the, in the, um, in the temple. And there was only enough for one day. But miraculously, the oil multiplied to the point that it was lit for eight days, and then that was the amount of time that it took to make the new formula of oil that's appropriate for lighting the candle. Why is this important? Well, it 's just history. this is what's happening. but it, it is also the feast of a um, feast of dedication is also known as Hanukkah, right and so this is, this is an important and interesting part of the story because. Jesus is celebrating this. Jesus is there interacting. I heard a, a message from Skip Heitzink, and I, I enjoy his preaching. And so I was listening to him speaking about this, and he said, you know, when people um, tend to, like, say, well, why do you celebrate Christmas? It's not in the Bible, you know. The birth of Jesus certainly is. And he was saying, well, Jesus celebrated this feast, so I guess it's okay that we celebrate Christmas, right? We can get nitpicky about certain things. And we realize that in this case, Jesus was not. that he finds himself there and he's participating in this feast that was very important for the people of Israel at that point in time and so he's walking through the temple in the colonnade of Solomon what we also know is that anytime there's a feast there's lots of people and so um, in verse 24 it says that that Jesus or so the Jews gathered around him and said to him how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ tell us plainly and Jesus answered them I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. It's interesting, and I underlined it in my Bible, um, but you do not believe. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Do you agree with me on that? There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. I heard one scholar say that that doubt is the fuel for curiosity that leads you to truth, right? That as humans, we have doubt in our hearts. And, so, and there's even that worship song, all my fears and doubts, they can all come to because they can't stay long when I'm here with you. Speaking of like bringing it all to Jesus, that you don't have to hide that stuff. Doubt is the different than unbelief, Doubt is the thing that all humans have surrounding supernatural things like faith. That when you approach something that sounds too good to be true, like grace, for example, how good is grace? We've been studying Romans in our, in our men's um, early morning group, and man, every time we're just like, What? No matter how many times you read Romans, no matter how many times you hear the gospel, you just go, grace is too good to be true. And when something feels too good to be true, what do you kind of do internally? Like, oh, that can't be true because it's too good to be true. But your doubt gives you the ability to press into scripture more and to understand the evidence of God at work in your own life and in the lives of people around you and what he's done through the word. And that doubt produces truth that makes you anchored in to who God is. It makes your faith stronger. And so I want to encourage you that maybe you grew up in a tradition or you grew up in a moment where you weren't allowed to ask hard questions. I just want to ask you if you would be bold enough to raise your hand and say, I grew up feeling like I couldn't ask hard questions. Come on, have you? Yeah. You, thank you for your honesty. And I wanted people to see because sometimes we can live under that shroud of I'm not allowed to ask hard questions. Like as if we're going to ask the one that makes God not true. Like, maybe I'm going to come up with the one that is so good that there's not going to be an answer for it. Do you know that God is not intimidated in the least by your questions? That He And you're going to see it here in a moment that he knows the attitude of your heart, especially when you're pursuing him in truth. Now, I'm not advocating for a whole group of us to get around and become skeptics and sow doubt into others. That's messed up. That really is, don't take your experience and dump it onto somebody else. Okay, that, that is a, a, a very dangerous area to get into that is in line with what the New Testament calls sowing discord or disunity. But when you're having an honest question in your heart, don't suppress it. Press into it. I've talked to people who are much wiser than me when I'm going through something and I'm, I go to them for an answer, right? Don't you, I just can't stand wise people because you go to them for answers and, and they'll just go, hmm, <laughs> yep. You should really press into that. This happened recently. You should really press into that. You're on to something. And the wisdom of the wise person puts you back in the position of going to the Father. They reassure you that you're not off track, but that there's some gold to glean by pressing into the difficult thing. So press into the difficult thing. Don't sweep it under the rug. Under the rug, because pressing into the difficult thing leads to revelation, and that leads to a stronger faith than you'll ever have. And once you get that stuff, man, you just want to pass it on. Amen. So Jesus, um, he confronts not their doubt; he confronts their unbelief. Unbelief is sin. According to the Bible, unbelief is an attitude of the heart that is so prideful that says, "Not only, not only do I doubt, but I refuse to believe. I refuse to believe." That is what unbelief is. Unbelief, I, I think, is is a deadly sin because it um, it says that that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so, if we refuse to believe, we take the position of being like. I, I'm, I, I know more. I refuse to believe what you say. And we, we then subject ourselves to the resistance of God. I, I love that passage of scripture. God resists the the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But if I really think about it, I wonder, what is that like to experience the resistance of God? And I, I, I think like of that game, you know, mercy, where you go like this with people and you like, yeah, 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 mercy. It's just, doing that with God, really? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, and Jesus is saying to them, hey, you know, I've told you who I am in many ways, and many people have actually believed as a result. Um, Jesus invites in John 3, whosoever believes that they could have eternal life, and then he later calls on these disciples and, and and the result of belief, and as we understand the full picture of that word belief, it's tied in with um, an action as well. It's not like, huh, yeah, that's true. I believe that. It's truth that you embrace, and it's, it's transformational in your life. And so if, if you believe him, you begin to follow him. And that's what we see in the disciples, right? They're fishing. They leave their nets, and they go and follow him. They're collecting taxes. They leave their books. They go and they follow him. And so we see the pattern happening in the early chapters where disciples believe and follow. Um, the woman at the well, after Jesus has a great conversation with her that's outside of cultural boundaries, um, she believes and she goes after to get everybody else to believe, like, look who I just met. The, uh, the man who got mud eyeballs believed. Just kidding. <laughs> if you weren't here for that, there was, you know, Jesus does the mud miracle and some interpretations are that he made eyeballs out of mud and stuck them in. I just think that's funny. Um, oh, sorry, <laughs> probably inappropriate that I said that. the The man who was the man who was born blind and received sight believes. the The five thousand who um, who received bread may, probably and clearly more than five thousand because it was just counting the men. They believe, but there are those that see all this, witness all this, hear it, and refuse to believe. And so they have to come up with crazy ideas to explain they're unexplainable for them. And the end result of this idea is that if, he, if, if we can't win, we just got to kill him, right? And so you see the plot early on to kill Jesus. Um, if you would turn really quickly to John chapter 20, and so you can understand how important this theme of belief is in the gospel of John It's laid out for us very clearly what the purpose of the book is. Now, Jesus did many other signs. You see, this is important because the signs give witness to who he is. And this is going to come up in his argument with them in just a moment. But Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, speaking of the signs, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God... And then what? By believing, you may have life in his name. And so, um, this is where we find ourselves now, is the showdown between um, the religious leaders and Jesus over the issue of unbelief. Now jump back, since you turned there, you can jump back to chapter 10, for those of you that still turn pages in in a book. Um, John 10, 27. Jesus follows and says, that you're not, you don't believe because you're not part of me. You're not part of my sheep. You're not part of those who've seen the signs, who've wrestled through their doubt and have embraced who I am and not only believe but have followed me. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life that they will never perish. Have you heard that before? Remember John 3? I give them eternal life that they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I can imagine him saying it to them with his eyes locked into their eyes in a piercing sort of way saying no one will snatch them out of my hands. Your intimidation tactics will not work with them. The way that you just kicked the the man who was born blind out of the synagogue and you threatened to do that to his parents, that's not going to work. No one will will snatch them out of my hands my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands I and the father are one there's things happening right here in the progression of how Jesus is is communicating remember we talked about that challenge um, that sort of sword fight that Jesus gets into it's a cultural thing where they do one he does one they do one he does one it's this response and um, this is happening again. But I wanted to pause here, and I wanted to say something that might be more important than anything else that I say in this whole message. Is that not only do you know God, not only have you surrendered your heart to Him, not only have you heard the gospel and decided to follow Jesus and have the hope of eternity, that, that you, you can rest assured that that in the when this life ends, that you'll be with him. That's a great news. That's like, oh. But not only do you know him, but I want you to hear this. He knows you. He knows you. I want that to settle over you for for a moment because sometimes in our Christian experience, in our relationship with God, we might believe some sort of lie that he knows, like, I don't know who the famous person is of the moment who's really a good Christian. He knows them really well, but he knows you, that God doesn't play favorites, that That he has sons and he has daughters. And any parent in the room knows that they know all, they have their favorites for sure, but they know that that they, that, 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 (laughs) just kidding. I'm just kidding. Might be true, but I'm kidding. I certainly do. I'm just kidding. No, I'm joking. (laughs) Joking. Um, no, but, you, but you, you, you realize the love that you have and the knowledge that you have of your children, that, that you know their voice and they know your voice. You know when they're little, their cry, and they know your tone of voice. They know your body language. They know, like, I'm super disappointed in you right now. I'm super happy with you right now. And others might not be able to know that, but they know that. This is your relationship with God. It's so vital because it changes everything when we realize that not only are we trying our best to appease him and make sure we get into heaven, but that he knows us, longs for a relationship with us. And as I've said many times, he loves us and he likes us. Sometimes we can believe that he loves us because he's God and he has to, and we don't even like ourselves. But he not only knows us, but he likes us. The way that he made you, and he longs to share more of his heart with you Not only are you known by God, but when I read this, I thought, oh, we need to hear this. We are kept by God. We're kept by Him. That is a powerful concept. It makes us fearless if we really believe it. We're kept by God. You know, in this world, we're going to have tribulations. Can I get an amen? Right? In this world, we're going to have tribulations. And they are significant. They're not small little bumps in the road. They're significant things. But we're kept by him this is one of my favorite psalms psalm 139 and there's a a, a phrase in there that i'm going to read the first six verses just to get to this one phrase and i hope it stays with you this morning this is the psalmist expressing the relationship that he has with god and this isn't just for david this is for you oh lord you've searched me and you what know me and in my my version Um, is ESV and it has an exclamation point. I don't know what what yours has. That's not a texty thing, right? You know, texty things where you, do you know if you text in all caps, you're yelling, right? You know, if you put an exclamation point, you're trying to just show there's energy in what you're saying. This exclamation point is, is for, everything is for a reason, right? And it's like, this is a bold statement. Oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. And he's exclaiming that. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. And sometimes our prayer is, I wish you would tell me not to say it. And he probably is, and we're probably saying it anyways, right? But before a word is on my tongue, behold, you know it all together. This is the phrase that I love. You hymn me in. I don't remember when it happened for me, but I read this and I thought, wow. It was in, I for sure in a moment, I go to the Psalms when I need that comfort. I go to the Psalms when I'm going through a rough time. And when I read you hymn me in, it just painted a picture for me that God was all around me. God wasn't just far ahead leading the way that I would go, where are you? I want to find you. I hadn't run so far away from God that he was off in the distance somewhere. I wasn't vulnerable to the attack to the right or to the left because his presence surrounded me. And when we hear these passages of scripture, they're important for us to really take in that you're kept by God, that you're hemmed in. You're hemmed in. That's powerful. Not just the ones that we think are his favorites, you, each and every one of you, you literally are God's favorite. Every single one of you are God's favorite. You hem me in, behind me and before me. You lay your hand upon me. And this is so true. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. And so this is Jesus communicating to those who believe. This is their inheritance and this is your inheritance. To those that are among his flock who know his voice. But to those who refuse to believe, they don't have that benefit. And, and so the ones that don't believe, as I said before, their only option is to destroy him because they can't win the argument. And Jesus, it says that after saying these things and declaring basically that he was God and the son of God, again, it's yet another time where they pick up stones to stone him. And they literally are ready to execute Jesus on the spot. Um, I, I've, I know some of you have too. You've seen in, in different nations, it's, um, in the developing world, in tribal areas, um, parts of Africa, for example, when there is something like a, uh, a horrible accident, you know, you'll get instant justice, right? If somebody, for example, I mean, it's a horrible thing to think about, but like say there was an accident and somebody like a child was killed. Very often in certain parts of, of certain nations, the, the community will come in that moment when the child was killed, they will kill the person who killed the child. This is something that happens quickly. It just quickly you can feel the tension rise, and there it happens. And it was one of those moments when they were picking up rocks, and when you read about these things, it's not like they're faking it, right? Like, you know, uh, you know like when you're going to, you know, spank your child, is that a wrong thing to do? Anyways, when they go to, when you, like, you hear the old school stories of, like, the grandpa who gets his belt, you know, he's, like, going to unbuckle his belt because he's going to whip you with his belt. It's not one of those kinds of things, It's not like, hey, I'm faking like I'm getting a rock. It's literally arming themselves to execute Jesus in that moment. And so what Jesus does right now is really important. Because what you need to know about Jesus is that nobody was going to take his life. He was going to give it up. But this is a human moment. So he had to react, and he was reacting. This is what he does. He answers them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which are you going to stone me? Because according to the law, the way they were going to do it is not the right way. They hadn't done the due diligence that was necessary to execute him. And so of which one of the things that the signs, remember these signs, the things that Jesus is done, which of the miracles are you killing me for? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because being a man, you make yourselves God. What happens next could be a confusing part of scripture for us, but is an intentional move from Jesus to um, keep them from killing him. And what he says is when he answers them according to their law, he says, is it, are you guys following me are we good? Okay, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods, lowercase g, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken because you need to know that the religious leaders hold scripture, the law, so high that they are not going to break this. It can't be broken. 36 says, um, Do you not say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If if, If I am not doing the works of my Father... Then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. This is uh, very surgical, what's happening right now. He is citing a real case law moment. He's referring to Psalm 82. If you want to turn in your Bible to Psalm 82, you can. There's a couple of different interpretations for this. I'm going to choose the right one. Um, the, 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 um, the danger of passages of Scripture like this is it can, it can, if you just read it and go, well, the Bible says that we're gods. Basically, you could go around telling people that. And I've actually heard that preached before. Uh, I've heard it preached before. You know, you're, you're highly valuable. Do you know that, uh, that Jesus calls you a god? you know and and it just feels yucky right it just feels yucky because that's what discernment does yucky is a theological term for when when something doesn't feel right but it's really the discernment of the holy spirit that goes okay but it's in the bible but am i that so in a quick look at psalm 82 brings some some um clarity of the matter and it says that um this is in, I'll, I'll read cha- uh, chapter 82 starting in verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. The word there is Elohim, right? Elohim, that's, that's how uh, a generic term for God, you know? In the beginning, uh, it, 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 the beginning of Genesis, right? It says, Bereshit Barah Elohim, in the beginning, God, right? And that word God with a capital G refers to God of the universe, the lowercase g can be used for all different kinds of false deities. It can even be spoken of in regards to angels and demonic presence, and so um, it is in that regard a, a general term. And so he says that it's that is the word that's being used. And so he says, um, in the midst of the gods, you, um, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show? partiality to the wicked and then there's that hebrew word selah which is a beautiful word which is a musical interlude that that requires you to stop and and think about what's being said now what's being said is that there are those like these ones now who are judges in israel right those who are are given the the responsibility of the law And because their judgments affect the destiny of another person, they are considered to be like gods in that regard, in a metaphorical general sense. Does that make sense? So if something that this person says affects your life and death, it's as though they're like a little Elohim, a a, a small g. And what this is saying is, hey, those of you, this divine counsel, you're judging unjustly. It says, how long will you judge unjustly? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They will, um, they will have neither knowledge or understanding, and they will walk about in darkness Um, the foundations and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. And then verse 6, and he says, And I said, this is God, You are God's Son of the Most High, all of you. Now these men who are accusing Jesus, who are about to kill him, fall into the same category as these guys, who God was calling out and saying, You've been appointed to judge, but you're doing it unrighteously. Jesus then References this passage. Verse, if it reads on, it says, "Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall um, inherit all the nations." Now, Jesus is basically saying, "Look, if these were evil and these were being rebuked by God for their injustice, and yet God didn't kill them and they were called sons of God, why are you going to kill me for doing good things if I'm called the son of God? Do you follow that logic?" So they have to go, because they had long beards, huh, and it was like, you have to go, oh, I wish I could just kill them. I mean, you can only imagine the reaction and the frustration, and we'll get back there in just a second, but the second interpretation of this passage is that the reference to these Elohim are, um, are like demonic angels, fallen angels, and that is in other parts of the scripture. I'm not, I'm not certain that that's the, the, the one for this. I don't know. Um, I'll leave it to you to discern. It seems to fit. The, the first interpretation seems to fit more accurately in my, uh, in my view, but it's, it's not a hill I'm willing to die on. But the fact that there is mention of these um, false deities reminds me that we need to be very well aware that our battle is not against flesh and blood. We don't win the war on intellect. We don't get through the battles that we face on grit. But it's not by might nor by power. It's by the Spirit. And I just felt it was important to remind us of Ephesians chapter 6. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And put on the whole armor that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Here it is. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It feels like it, doesn't it? It feels like that we're wrestling the person, not the spirit that's driving that person. It feels like we're, we're wrestling the, the realities of the weight of the world that lands on our shoulders. But what we're wrestling against is rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over present darkness and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And then he tells us, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, stand firm. Can we just stop? Can we just stop for a moment? And, and, you know, I've said already that, hey, let's cast our cares on him. But the reality of it is, is everybody's going through something. Everybody is going through something. Your something might feel like uh, just a ton of bricks. And you look at somebody else's something that they're going through and go, man, I wish I could have their trial. But their trial feels like two tons of bricks. But the battle and the wrestle is not against flesh and blood that there is authority that we have in the name of jesus that there's power that we have to overcome the evil one do you agree with me so let's not just have um bible teaching time but let's apply it like let's just right here in this moment say hey let's pause let's just pause and let's let's just let the holy spirit Um, wash over us touch our lives and 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 what you can do is I want you to identify what what is that that battle that is raging against you Uh, maybe it's internal maybe it's something of of a lack of confidence I know that that is something that plagues you know they used to be really confident now all of a sudden you're not anymore and you're wondering what's going on is it that one person who said a comment to you or is it the enemy of your soul trying to whittle away at your very essence and calling for others, maybe it's, it's the, the temptations that you so desperately want to walk out of repetitive sin, you so desperately want to be free of these entanglements, but you're finding it impossible, impassable. The battle isn't against flesh and blood. It isn't going to work through behavioral correction. You can't snap the rubber band on your wrist enough to stop saying bad words or smoking or drinking or chewing or hanging around with people who are doing whatever. Listen. God wants to transform our hearts, and it's a spiritual, supernatural thing. And God, I just pray, Lord, in this moment, in the middle of our sermon, that you manifest your presence into the hearts and minds of your people according to your word. Wherever two or more are gathered in your name, you're here in our midst. This isn't a lecture. This is your word that is alive. And where we wrestle, may our wrestle be one of victory because we know who our opponent is. God, I pray that you would redirect us today, that you would set us free. I pray the authority of Jesus over each heart and mind. Lord, I pray um, clarity over anyone who is being deceived by the evil one, that you, God, would bring your clarity and that you would give us the will and the way to arm ourselves appropriately, as Ephesians teaches us to do, putting on the full armor of Christ and then standing firm. Lord, bless your people in this, God. We give this to you. This is your part. This is your part to just give it to the Lord. Give the battle to the Lord and take back the instructions from from the Lord. God, I pray you would impart wisdom and clear steps of obedience to your people. In the name of Jesus, amen. Jesus, having given this skillful argument, says, to, um, says these things to them. They process through what he said. They realize they don't have the ability to then stone him. And then they seek to arrest him. But I love this. It says that, that Jesus escaped from their hands. I love that. He doesn't say how, but it must have been awesome. Awesome. It must have been awesome, because it doesn't say that he slipped away. Other times it says that he does. But this is that he escaped from their hands. Like, I don't know, was there a move? Like, what happened? I don't know. But, but the reason that I, I want to reference that and, and say that it's important is because, uh, as I said before, he was not going to allow them to take his life. He was going to freely give it up. Um, He said it already earlier, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. So we're coming in for a landing and we're going to receive communion in just a moment, but stick with me because this is where it ends. In verse 40, it says, he went away across the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing at first. Wasn't last Sunday awesome? It was awesome, right? Just to come to that, that, that place of baptism. And I referenced this in, in, in that service, how that's where Jesus finds himself. It says that he, he remained there. He went to the place where John had been baptizing first, and he remained there. He wasn't elusive. He wasn't ditching the, the hand of the, um, those that were trying to kill him, but he was there. And where he remained, many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. The issue of this chapter is about belief and unbelief. The many believed, but the few were unbelieving. The ones who should have believed because they could, they had the, the understanding of the law were blinded. Not because they doubted, but because they refused to believe. It was a stubbornness that led to pride that led to death. Death meaning internal separation from God. And where I wanted to end our time, um, in, I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. And with the time that we have remaining, um, we're going to do this in four minutes. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. Sorry. <laughs> I hope that you're not um, holding time too tightly. But let's, let's just be together for these next moments and not be in a rush Because what what communion is for us is another opportunity to remember. And what we're remembering is the authority that we have to win the battle because of Jesus. What we're remembering is what he did for us when he willfully laid his life down. What he did for us when he escaped their arrest. Because for the joy set before him, he was going to endure the cross. You were the joy that was set before him. Everything that he did was intentional and it was with you in mind because he knows you because he loves you because he he holds you in such a way that no one can snatch you out of his hands what you celebrate today is the security that you have in a relationship with a God who loves you to death don't ever let that become trivial don't ever take that for granted and communion gives us a full sensory opportunity to remember to remember the, the blood that was shed on the cross. To remember his body that was broken for you. To remember that today's a fresh start and a new beginning. You don't have to refuse to believe him. You can come with your doubts. But if you choose to believe him and to follow him, the promise from God's word is that you're going to have life. Eternal life. Eternal life is a, is a quantity of life. That will blow your brain out trying to think of forever. Don't do it right now. I'll mess you up. And it's also a quality of life. It's a quality of life that begins right now. That's Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life to the fullest. That's what we celebrate. We remember that we have quality of life in Christ. We have quantity of life in Christ. And that we're hemmed in. We're hemmed in. Not even the most elite of the religious could snatch Jesus away he escaped him and you have the power to escape the power and the clutches of the enemy amen Hebrews 10:12 says this that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God you know that God you serve is not in any way nervous today not nervous about world events, not nervous about the conditions of your life, not nervous about your finances. He's not nervous about your job search or your job situation or your relationships. He's not nervous. He actually has answers. And, and he, the, the, the fact that he's, he, he's not nervous uh, is illustrated by the fact that he's done it all and he's sitting down. He's in a posture of in control and in authority and waits to be wanted by you. Philippians 2, 7 says, He emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, but being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And here's a really good part. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess. That Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. As a worship team leads us, when you're ready, just come. Come to. There's four different spots that you can receive communion. If you're at a place this morning where you want to receive but um, you can't get out of your pew or it's a pain to get up here, just tell the person next to you, "Hey, bring me. Bring it back to me. Let's do communion together." Right. And so once you you hold the cup that symbolizes his blood and you hold the the wafer which is symbolizing the bread or his body just hang on to it and then we'll break bread together so whenever you're ready um, come and and take the elements and have hold them in your hands
3: brushing
0: welcome to sit or to stand but i I just would encourage you to find yourself in a posture where you can as best as you can block out whatever's going on around you and get your gaze on jesus the point of communion is to remember jesus said as often as you do this do it in remembrance of me the remembrance was the life death burial and resurrection of jesus Later in the New Testament, this very thing would go sideways where people would miss the point and not prefer one another and literally drink too much of the wine and get drunk and turn into a mess where the apostle Paul says, hey man, you're getting together does more harm than good. And he calls them into correction and he tells them to to before they break this bread and drink this cup to search their hearts and to not receive it in an unworthy manner and it's wise for us to do that as well it's wise for us not to miss the moment that is so mysterious and wonderful that this is all a symbol but it's so much more that this is a supernatural memory and remembrance of what Jesus has done and there's healing that comes through communion it's not magic that somehow magically we're were healed it's because of what the promise of Jesus that by his stripes we're made whole that that it's wonderful as we drink the cup that we we remember that what can wash away our sins nothing but the blood of Jesus what can make us whole again nothing but the blood of Jesus without the the shedding of blood there could be no remission of sin and the perfect lamb Jesus shed his blood on our behalf that we can have forgiveness of sin. It's a new start for you today. Let's consider those things. Let's consider those areas where maybe we've chosen to be in disunity with another brother or sister. The Bible's really clear about that stuff too. It just says, gotta make that right. Maybe it's a commitment in your heart. And say, Lord, I'm gonna do that by your power. When we were worshiping. I felt this quickening in my spirit from Revelation chapter 2 when Jesus was speaking to the church in Ephesus and He had so many good things to say. He said, But I got this one thing. You've, you've left your first love. You and go back and do the things that you did at first. I felt that was a word for us today that not a condemning word from the Lord, but a strong word that over time. We can get good at being cultural Christians but Jesus is calling us to that love relationship where he hymns us in, where we're held by him, where we're known by him and we know him. Baptism helps us to remember that. Communion helps us to remember that. Let's return to our first love. We hold up the, the bread Jesus, we remember your body That was broken for us I, ca- I can't get over the fact That you did it with us in mind And you did it with joy You suffered pain And ridicule And shame So that we could be delivered From those things and that, that by your stripes we could be made whole. Lord, I pray healing over your people today emotionally, physically, spiritually. Lord, correct things that have gotten off the track because of your sacrifice. In the name of Jesus, let's break and eat together. we hold the cup it's the symbol of a new covenant of God's grace way too good to be true but it is receiving God's grace by believing in Jesus resulting in a change of our life and following him Jesus we declare that you are our Lord and Savior Jesus we thank you that you give us a fresh start that there's new mercy every day. Thank you for your blood that washes over us. Thank you that when we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for your blood shed for us. We remember. A strength together. If you're at a place where you can, would you? stand with me as we sing this song just one last time, and then I'll pray a blessing over you. thank you for your sheep, the sheep of your pasture, that we know your voice, that we believe and that you hold us, Lord, that you call us. We know your voice, that you hymn us in and that nothing is going to snatch us out of the Father's hands. I thank you for that security. Lord, I thank you for your sacrifice for us and that you did it on your terms and your way out of obedience to the Father. God, thank you for what you've shown us today. May your word continue to stay alive in our hearts throughout this week. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. God bless you guys. If you want prayer, please come. We'd love to pray for you.
3: Thank you. Say, oh, all <laughs> this is our story, God. Of this, just it. our young song begin to sing our